1: old school vets, looking him over, critiquing him, his sparkling gold chains, his red and black Nike tracksuit, his gait, and yes, most definitely, they were staring at those Air Jordans on his feet. It was February 9th, 1985, Jordan's first NBA slam dunk competition, and he was just 21 years old. He was unaware of the acrimony as he warmed up in his Nike Air Jordan 1s. Four months earlier, the NBA banned a similar shoe worn by Jordan because it did not conform to the predominantly white sneakers of his teammates. The shoes had become a red-hot commodity, outselling those of the most established stars in the league, sparking inevitable resentment. And then there was his choice of the Nike sweats, Nobody had ever worn anything except their respective team uniforms for the competition. And now this kid has the audacity to show up peddling his brand? Didn't he understand there were certain protocols rookies were expected to follow, including respecting your elders? All these years later, Jordan insists he meant no disrespect.
2: I always felt like I was the lowest on the totem pole wherever I went, and I had to work my way up to the top, you know. So I had so much respect for those guys. Somewhat intimidated, but yet it was, once I got on the basketball court, it was about, okay, how did my talents compare with those guys?
1: Jordan advanced to the dunk final with a soaring, gravity-defined excursion from the foul line. But he would not win on this day. And 24 hours later, when he played in his first All-Star game, MJ took just nine shots, the fewest among the East starters. A few of the reserves even outshot him. Jordan was mildly disappointed that he didn't have the opportunity to make a bigger impact on the game, but didn't think too much of it until reporters started asking questions. They intimated there had been a freeze-out, orchestrated by Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, and others to, quote, put him in his place. At first, Jordan was confused. Later. He was furious.
2: I didn't really know I was too immature at the time to even realize it was happening, and then I just kept trying to become the best basketball player I could be. And then all the other stuff just kind of took a life of its own.
1: Afterward, veteran George Gervin declared, Michael is a rookie, and he has a lot to learn, just like we all did. Little did Gervin know the kid was about to school them all. Jordan systematically vanquished his rivals with a ferocity and a focus that was unabated. He wasn't about to stop until he seized the mantle of the greatest player ever, and that of the most marketable man on the planet. And it would be, for the most part, a solo flight. I'm Jackie McMullen. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. Episode 4 MJ When Michael Jordan was 15 years old, he wasn't dreaming of creating one of the most influential brands in sports history. And he most definitely wasn't scheming on how he could gain admittance to The Icons Club. Back then, Jordan wasn't even watching the NBA to pick up pointers. The games were too difficult to find on his TV set. And besides, where MJ grew up in rural North Carolina, college basketball was king. As he explains to me, it's not like now, where numerous networks peddle an array of NBA choices.
2: We only had ABC and NBC which uh, a lot of the kids today, they don't have an understanding for that. Or, you know, putting the uh, clothes hanger on the TV to try to be able to get a better reception. You know, this is how I grew up, and the closest thing that I saw was David Thompson.
1: There was no such thing as a global superstar. Jordan only wanted to be like the players starring for his local college teams. Guys like Thompson, the high-flying star of NC State, and Walter Davis, Jordan's North Carolina muse, both of whom had their NBA careers cut short due to drug issues. You've heard the urban legend about Jordan getting cut from his high school team. But as far as I know, it really wasn't some dramatic thing. A lot of 5'10 sophomores play JV. But Jordan has always been good at turning mild setbacks into motivation. And this was no exception. One thing that isn't as widely known is that by the time he got to high school, Jordan idolized Magic Johnson. Magic was a guard in a forward's body who maneuvered around smaller, quicker point guards as though the ball was part of his hand. And that smile, so captivating. Magic's court vision, along with his charisma, mesmerized MJ. And he realized the only club he truly wanted to be in was one in which Johnson was a card-carrying member. He began mimicking Magic's moves in the backyard, and Jordan's high school friends nicknamed him Magic Mike.
2: I even had Magic Mike on my car, which was a 75, 76 Grand Prix that was used, T-top. And, you know, that was when everything kind of originated.
1: Jordan's relationship with Magic would prove to be infinitely complicated. We'll get to that later. But first, Jordan like magic, went to college and established himself as the ultimate clutch performer. North Carolina was a storied program run by Dean Smith, who preached team above all else. Even though it quickly became apparent Jordan had prescient basketball instincts, along with exceptional athleticism, a maniacal competitiveness, and a relentless willingness to put in the time, Smith treated his young prodigy like everybody else. And that meant as a freshman, Jordan had to wait his turn. When Sports Illustrated asked to put the Carolina starters on the cover with their coach in advance of Jordan's first season, Smith said yes, with the exception of the freshman. MJ steamed as teammates Matt Doherty, Sam Perkins, James Worthy, and Jimmy Black posed for the photo shoot while he was taking elementary Portuguese. Yet it was the freshman who calmly swished a 16-foot pull-up jump shot in the 1982 NCAA championship to beat Georgetown 63 to 62. In a bizarre finish, Georgetown guard Fred Brown mistakenly passed the ball to Worthy to end the game. Shot, Jordan, Michael
3: Jordan, 14 seconds. Oh, God.
1: Brown received a lot of flack for that play, but Coach Smith would later make the argument that Jordan's unique ability to jump the passing lane on the player that Brown intended to pass the ball to forced the turnover. During the offseason, Smith sent Jordan a letter dated May 17, 1983, encouraging him to shoot the ball the same way each time with the same arc, to not allow his body to fall back as he shot free throws, to spend the summer playing point guard to develop better ball handling skills, and then finally, this gem. Don't always reach for the ball, but contain your man. You can't steal it all the time. Jordan returned to Carolina as a must-see talent. He could shoot, he could score in the open floor, and he exhibited the same flair as Dr. J. Whether it was his rock-the-cradle dunk against Maryland. or when he soared above 7'4", Virginia center Ralph Sampson to tip home an offensive rebound.
2: Throw in some 360
1: spin moves, a few baseline jams, and a defensive motor that generated deflections, steals, and spectacular open court baskets. No wonder he was anointed the best swing player in the college game. Naturally, it all went to his head. Jordan was the big man on campus in his sophomore season, and Smith had seen enough. The Tar Heel rule was, if one player dogged it in practice, everyone had to run. But one day, when Jordan was lollygagging, Smith took a different approach. He put a chair in the middle of the court and made Jordan sit there while his teammates did wind sprints around him. Message received. By the end of Jordan's junior season, Smith, who normally encouraged his student-athletes to complete four years of college, gave MJ his blessing to go pro. It was clear to Smith that Jordan was ready for the next level. What he didn't realize was how dramatically Jordan was about to turn the NBA on its ear. And I'm not even talking about what he did on the basketball court. Jordan's seismic impact came in the form of a landmark five-year contract worth half a million dollars per season with Nike, without having scored a basket. Until that moment, his former Tar Heel teammate, James Worthy, had landed the most lucrative shoe deal, a $150,000 a year agreement with New Balance. Reports put Magic and Larry's deals at Converse somewhere between 75,000 and 100,000. But as David Falk explains, jordan's package included royalties annuities and stock oh and there was one more thing that set his deal apart his shoe was his
4: and his alone now to put it in perspective you have to understand in 1984 magic johnson didn't have his own shoe larry bird didn't have his own shoe dr j didn't no one had their own shoe except ralph sampson and he probably sold five pairs to his mother uh, with puma
1: think about this for a minute The hotshot kid from Carolina enters the NBA draft, isn't even selected first or second, and then shatters every record and alters the sports marketing landscape forever. It's been well documented that Jordan intended all along to be an Adidas guy. He loved their brand, wore their shoes, and only met with the other companies to drive up the price.
2: I hate repeating that because I don't want Adidas to gain something from it in the sense that, you know, I, I once did like their shoes.
1: At the time, Converse was king in basketball. It was the official shoe of North Carolina, so Smith encouraged Jordan to talk with them. But it was clear that with a stable of stars that included Magic, Bird, Kevin McHale, Isaiah, Mark Aguirre, and Bernard King, he would be just one of many wearing the Converse weapon. Nike, a company still in its infancy, took a different approach. They informed Jordan they wanted to embrace him as their marquee star, both with shoes and apparel. This was a novel concept. Nobody was walking around with sweatshirts that featured a Kareem Skyhook or a Dr. J foul Line Dunk. Falk conjured up the perfect name for the brand, Air Jordan.
2: That was a whole concept, because at that time, everybody's focused on sneakers. What Jordan brand, what Nike did, was they went head to toe we were going to dominate from head to toe. And that was the first time that whole concept actually came into play.
1: Nike showed Jordan a highlight reel of himself set to the Pointer Sisters smash hit, Jump. jump Designer Peter Moore revealed a black and red shoe, the colors of MJ's new team, the Chicago Bulls and told the rookie he could tailor it to his liking. Another first in the shoe wars. The Nike deal was laden with incentives that, in retrospect, proved to be laughable. Jordan needed to accomplish one of three things within the first three seasons or Nike could terminate his agreement early. Win Rookie of the Year, become an All-Star, or average 20 points a game. MJ took care of all three in his first season. The other stipulation was equally amusing. Unless the company sold $4 million of shoes by the third year, the contract could be voided. The Nike Air Jordan 1, which retailed for what was then a hefty $65, generated $126 million in revenue in Jordan's first season. NJ wore a different model, the Nike Airships, during an exhibition game in 1984 which prompted a formal cease and desist letter from the NBA, warning him he would incur a $5,000 fine if he wore shoes absent of the white background during games. Nike turned the flap into a cheeky marketing opportunity, releasing an ad for the Air Jordan 1 that showed Jordan wearing the shoes with a voiceover that told the viewers,
5: On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them.
1: Jordan wasn't keen on people telling him what to do, which is why he wore the band air Jordans during the dunk contest. While he certainly put on a show, his fellow NBA stars judged the contest, and they weren't about to let him upstage the likable Dominique Wilkins and his two-handed around the world dunk. Jordan's showmanship left some of the vets feeling sour. Michael felt there was widespread jealousy over the creation of his Air Jordan brand, an instant colossal financial boon.
2: It was a great idea. It was a great concept. And next thing you know, it got bigger than any other shoe contract, which I think had a lot to do with, you know, the jealousies and the animosities throughout the league.
1: Indeed, by 1987, Magic Johnson declared he was so deeply disappointed in Converse that he planned to leave because they were not marketing him properly and maximizing his earning potential. In other words, he was envious they weren't creating the Magic brand. During the 85 All-Star Game, both Magic and Isaiah agreed to match up against one another and coast defensively, while Gervin, in a twist on his Iceman nickname, picked up Jordan and tracked him like it was the NBA Finals. Jordan finished with seven points. Falk said it was clear
4: what was transpiring on the court. Everyone knows that they froze him out. I mean, you know, they they froze him out because they were jealous. They said, who is this rookie who, you know, hasn't done anything, you know, who has something that we don't have?
1: The furor that followed surprised and frustrated Jordan. It also left him wounded and wary of this brethren of stars who seemed to follow a code that he wasn't privy to.
2: Look, uh. I thought with the way I came into the league and what David Falk and Pro Server and all the guys were teaching me was how to be a business person playing the game of basketball. Uh, I didn't think it was a certain protocol in terms of how you had to either interact with these people or you know meet them, greet them, praise them. Either way, I didn't know that.
1: Falk recalls returning with Jordan to his Chicago apartment following All Star Weekend. The rookie knew he'd be away from home for a few days, so he turned the heat off to save money. His pipes froze in his absence. Yet Jordan was far more perturbed by the freeze-out that occurred on the all-star court in Indianapolis. As the day wore on, he became more and more agitated.
4: We're sitting in his apartment in Northburn, in his townhouse, with our winter coats on, and he is on the couch, lying down, steaming, we the game in his mind over and over again. And I finally told him, let me give you some advice that my wife, Rhonda, always gives me. Don't get mad, just get even.
1: Isaiah and Magic have consistently denied any freeze-out existed. But as Jordan has demonstrated in the past, he seized on the smallest of slights and used it to work himself into a frenzy. He wanted revenge. Two days after the All-Star game, he torched Isaiah and his Pistons for 49 points. And for the next few years, he resisted Magic's Cheshire Cat grin, choosing to engage in perfunctory handshakes as opposed to bear hugs or high fives. Truth was, he didn't trust Magic and resisted developing a friendship with him.
2: Well, I understood it to be jealousy. And, and, you know, I, I think a lot of it came from Magic Johnson should have been Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. He had the smile, he had everything, he had the marker bill, he had the championships.
1: For icons who play in the same era, struggling to figure out a healthy relationship with one another is something of a rite of passage. Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell slept in each other's beds on the road and joined forces for social justice causes. But they didn't speak for 20 years after Russell criticized Wilt for not playing through an injury in Game 7 of the 1969 Finals. Magic and Bird developed a healthy respect for one another, but years of vying for the Larry O'Brien trophy made it virtually impossible to maintain anything more than a cursory relationship while they competed. But Jordan always planned to go it alone. Those who knew him best claim his killer instinct was deeply ingrained in him. Rick Fox, a fellow Tar Heel alumnus, got to know Jordan by working his camps each summer. Jordan made it clear his kindness would stop the moment they stepped onto the NBA court on opposite sides.
2: The Mike I know
6: was the Mike that showed me how to be a shark because,
4: A, I wanted to be like, like I, like I had a front row seat to his greatness. And I'm telling you, like for like two summers, like I got to drive his cars, live in his house, like I was
6: around him. And then as I became a pro, I shifted to, I can't be this guy's friend. He can't be my mentor no more. I got to find myself a way to compete against this animal because he can't.
2: I can't look up to him anymore, you know, because he'll eat me to death.
1: Even without the validation of his peers, Jordan's presence on the court was unmistakable. Doug Collins became the Bulls coach in 1986. And his first game with Jordan was at Madison Square Garden against a Knicks team led by future Hall of Famer, Patrick Ewing. It was tight throughout and Collins admits he was a nervous wreck.
5: Two minutes to go in the game, the game is tied. And so I come over, I've soaked through my suits. I've chewed my gum to where it's a white powder around my mouth. So I sat down to talk to the team and I saw this black hand come out with a cup of water. And I looked up, and it was Michael. And, I, and, and he said, take this cup, drink the water, clean that shit off your mouth. I'm not going to let you lose your first game. I think he scored the last 10 points of the game, had 50. And we walked off, and I go, what am
1: I in store for here? Jordan was just getting started. He would win games and drop jaws for the next dozen years. And the league would never be the same. Fellow athletes immediately identify sublime talent when they witness it. Jordan played with a flare that was candescent. When he launched himself above the rim, a living, breathing imitation of his Jumpman logo, no one could prepare for what was next. Because he was literally improvising on the fly. His creativity was as impressive as his skill set. MJ was simply too talented for other stars to snub him for long. In Jordan's mind, his validation had arrived in the 1986 playoffs when he dropped 63 points on the eventual NBA champion Boston Celtics. And the normally taciturn bird declared he was, quote, God disguised as Michael Jordan.
2: When Bird gave me that comment, you know that was the biggest comment I've ever received in my life, and that was the type of respect that he gave me. But we never really, you know, I never really called him or embraced. Uh, I wanted to maintain that competitive, you know, edge that we had against each other.
1: He felt the ice beginning to thaw after that. Other superstars began showing grudging respect, administered in subtle fashion: a nod, a handshake, a quick hug. By Jordan's third season. Magic invited him to play in his annual summer charity game. But Jordan says he didn't exactly throw him a welcome party.
2: And I think it was more or less to respect that you know, you're on your way, but you're not there yet, but you're on your way.
1: While Jordan's performances were otherworldly, his teams were not. For three consecutive seasons from 1984 to 87, Chicago was bounced in the first round. In the 86-87 season, Jordan won the scoring title and would do it again for the next seven consecutive seasons. But until he yanked his team over the hump, the pundits dismissed his transcendent performances as empty. It's hard to envision now that anyone ever doubted Jordan. But trust me, they did. Ruthlessly. Relentlessly.
5: Will Michael Jordan ever learn to make his teammates better? Why
1: can't Jordan win? Why does he take so many shots?
0: He's no Magic or Larry.
1: Overlooked in the carping was that Jordan's development coincided with the years long epic duel between Boston and LA, Bird and Magic, and later Detroit and LA, Isaiah and Magic. There simply weren't opportunities for young upstarts to spread their wings on the largest stage. But Jordan responded in the coming years with the kind of signature moments that built his lore as the sports world's unstoppable, unflappable winning machine. There's the time Doug Collins switched MJ to point guard in the 88-89 season. And he averaged a triple-double.
5: Jordan now with 15 points, 11 rebounds, and 10 assists. One of the fastest triple-doubles, maybe the fastest triple-double on record. Man.
1: Then in the 89 playoffs came what is forever known as the shot.
5: The inbounds pass comes into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A
6: shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! They win
1: it! The bad boy Pistons knocked the Bulls out of the playoffs three consecutive years, beating Jordan to a pulp in the 88 Eastern Conference Semifinals and the 89 and 90 Conference Finals. Michael Jordan goes. But after the Bulls fired Collins in favor of his quirky assistant, Phil Jackson, and the Zen Master got MJ to buy into the power of meditation and visualization, oh yeah, and the triangle too, Jordan got his revenge in the 1991 conference finals.
6: The Pistons, with the indication that it is all over, a great run has
2: come to a close.
1: When the Bulls finally bested the Pistons, Isaiah and resident bad boy Bill Lambert strode off the court before the buzzer sounded without shaking hands. Jordan see that their derision. He was inconsolable after losing to Detroit the previous season. Yet, quite possibly with Coach Dean Smith in mind, he willed himself to congratulate the Pistons at mid-court before he departed. Isaiah would later express some regret but also correctly contended that some Celtics, including Bird, did the same thing to Detroit as time was expiring in 1988. That was irrelevant to Jordan. He had shown Detroit respect and expected the same. In The Last Dance, a 2020 documentary from ESPN and Netflix chronicling Jordan and his Bulls teams, Jordan called Isaiah's explanation bullshit, adding, There's no way you can convince me he wasn't an asshole. Jordan didn't linger very long on the topic. Magic and the Lakers were waiting in the 1991 finals. By then, Kareem had retired, and Magic, without realizing it, was playing in his last full season for the Lakers. Chicago breezed to the title in five games, and Jordan was named finals MVP, the first of six that he would win. As he skipped to the locker room, Jordan allowed himself to release all the pent up frustration of seven years worth of disappointment. The photo of a weeping Jordan leaning his head against the Larry O'Brien trophy became an instant classic. His teammates, who rarely glimpsed an emotional side of MJ, and if they did, it was usually flashes of anger, were flabbergasted as they watched their supernova blubber like a small child. The Chicago Bulls won titles in 1991, 92, and 93. Michael Jordan was undefeated in championship play and established himself as the most electric and innovative superstar in the game. By then, he was endorsing everything from batteries to cars to hamburgers to underwear. Remember this ad?
2: They're Hanes. Let's just leave it at that. Oh, no,
1: Not surprisingly, the Jordan brand also continued to explode. His shoes were no longer just for athletes. Celebrities clamored to wear them courtside, to lavish galas, even for their nuptials. Little girls laced them up at birthday parties. In the early 90s, Air Jordan shoes, with a price tag north of $100, dwarfed sales of Magic's Converse Weapon sneakers. Jordan says his portfolio was unique because Falk cleverly tied other companies into the Air Jordan model, including Gatorade, whose brilliant campaign left everybody humming. If, if I could be here like, like Mike, I could be like, Mike. like Mike. If I could be like
3: Mike. If like
1: Falk's initial approach was to sell Jordan, who had just come off a fabulous Olympic Games performance in 1984 as the all-American hero. He solicited three companies that fit the image, Chevrolet, McDonald's, and Coca-Cola. Then he integrated those products into the Jordan brand.
4: And the challenge of doing it, Jackie, was that no one had ever done it before. So you couldn't go back and say, well, how did Magic do it in 1979? How did Doc do it? Because they, they didn't do it. And so we got to the point where, He did videos with the NBA, come fly with me, and we advertised them on the Wheaties box. We cross-marketed across the entire platform of companies. When we did Space Jam, we had Eric Jordan in it. We talked about Lemony Fred. We had all the companies in the movie. Through
1: the years, Jordan unveiled memorable campaigns, including one starring actor Spike Lee, who in the role of his alter ego, Mars Blackman, delivered the iconic phrase, It's gotta be the shoes. the short
2: socks. No
1: more. Money's gotta be the shoes.
2: Shoes.
1: Shoes. Generations of players hung on every word, first in TV spots and later in the archives of YouTube. While a young Kevin Durant appreciated MJ's star power off the floor, he assures me it was the -the on-the-court brilliance that truly attracted him.
6: Yeah, that was huge. His popularity was huge. You know, the shoes, the commercials, all of that stuff was huge, but more so than anything, how he played made me feel a certain way. Like, you know, it made me wanna watch the game.
1: Even long after retirement, Jordan's likeness remains a coveted commodity. In recent years, Nike has reintroduced the retro Air Jordans. In 2014, the company sold $35 million worth of shoes in one day. Even Jordan is amazed by its staying power.
2: I don't think anyone knew uh, at that time that 35 years later, here we are, we're going to be talking about Jordan a $5 billion business. No one thought that. And it was all predicated on how I played the game of basketball.
1: Basketball was never a problem for Jordan, but the color of his skin could have been for Madison Avenue, if not for the groundwork that Dr. J laid. As I detailed earlier in the series, Julius broadened the scope of what an NBA star could sell. Shoes, soda, toothpaste, video games. Falk confirms the landscape was a bit rocky for black athletes when Jordan entered the league in 1984.
4: When I told them, what do you think about an association with Michael Jordan? They said to me, God, are you kidding me? What are we going to do with a black basketball player? And I said, same thing you do with a white basketball player. You put him in front of the camera. He's a great-looking guy. I guess they were discriminating, but they had no t- – he was the test case. And I think he broke down all the barriers of race, color, age, You know, everything. whatever you want to say. He enabled a whole future generations of people. And, and they take it for granted.
1: While Jordan may have expanded the boundaries of the NBA pitchman more than anyone before or since, he told me he'll always be grateful for the groundwork Julius Irving laid. You heard this clip once before in the episode about Dr. J.
2: Dr. J was one of the guys that I idolized from the business side of things, and I wanted to take that same passage and show that I was more than just a basketball player. You know, I had a personality, I had a business uh, mindset. You know, I can coordinate and I can cross, you know, all different types of color barriers.
1: Irving was neither jealous nor resentful of Jordan's marketing prowess. He embraced the young star as the next face of the league, even if it was something they never actually discussed.
2: You really don't have to talk about it. You don't have to say, look, here's what you got to do and here's how you got to treat the media and here's how you got to treat the fans and so on and so forth. Because if you're an heir apparent,
1: you're already doing that stuff. Jordan took the NBA pitch man to a global stage, but unlike Wilt and Russell, who were vocal participants in the civil rights movement, Jordan was more reticent about applying his influence to social issues. Even former President Barack Obama, a diehard Bulls fan, admitted he was disappointed when in 1990, Jordan wouldn't publicly support Democrat Harvey Gantt over the racially divisive Jesse Helms in their contentious Senate race. Activist Craig Hodges, Jordan's teammate with the Bulls from 1988 to 92, implored him to speak out on racism, even urged Jordan to break away from Nike, create his own shoe, and hire members of the Chicago minority community to produce it. When Rodney King was beaten by the Los Angeles police in 1991, Hodges went to Jordan and Magic just before the tip-off of the 91 finals and asked them to boycott the game to protest police brutality against people of color. Hodge's proposal was eerily similar to what the Milwaukee Bucks did in 2020, when a black man, Jacob Blake, was shot seven times in the back by police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The Bucks players were lauded as social justice mavericks. But in the early 90s, the climate was different. Icons like Jordan and Magic chose not to dabble in such matters out of concern for their reputations and their marketing partners. According to Craig Hodges' book, Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter, Magic refused to even consider his proposal. And Jordan told him, You're crazy. After Game 2, Hodges criticized Jordan for not publicly condemning the treatment of Rodney King. After the Bulls won the title, Chicago moved on from Hodges, and he never played in the NBA again. Hodges recently stressed he doesn't believe Jordan was a bad person, just someone who put economic considerations above unified freedom. In the last dance, Jordan conceded he didn't consider himself an activist because he was too busy perfecting his craft. Was that selfish, Jordan asked in the documentary? Probably. Probably. But that was my energy. Falk insists he never had conversations with Jordan regarding his political leanings and how it would affect the brand. The topic was personal and off limits.
4: He was a superstar at age 24. He wasn't comfortable endorsing political candidates. And I think he had a philosophy that he knew that if he told someone to vote for candidate A, that they would but maybe candidate A was good for Michael, wasn't good for the person. One of the things that made Michael successful, he he was so comfortable in his own skin that he wasn't worried about the criticism.
1: Jordan repeatedly made it clear he planned to have his game do the talking. For all the flair, the violent dunks, the hang time, and of course, the signature dangling tongue, Jordan actually prided himself most on being a two-way player who did not cut corners. Collins says Jordan was such a stickler about practice, the two would review what they should emphasize beforehand. I thought he was the most fundamentally
5: sound player in the game at that time. You watch his footwork, you watch all the things he, he does, but Michael was always troubled early because he didn't have the supporting cast, Jackie, so all he ever heard was he didn't make guys better. Magic made guys better. Isaiah made guys better. Bird made guys better. And I remember Michael saying, says, give me a sporting cast like that and I promise you I will make them
1: better, which he did. Jordan showed no mercy to opponents or teammates who did not share his vision of winning at all costs. It was a conscious effort, he tells me, to establish himself as untouchable in a league of his own.
2: I learned that in the early stages that, you have to be very dominant. You want that dominance to be exuded throughout you know, your competition and people to know what they're going to get themselves into. You have to maintain that personality. Not a hateful personality. It's just that when I go to work, I go to work. And I mean, whoever I play against I play against them as if they're trying to take something away from me.
1: This persona made it difficult for others to identify with him, including many of his teammates. Steve Kerr played alongside Jordan in Chicago for three-plus seasons. And was infamously on the receiving end of an MJ haymaker during an argument in practice. He describes the aura that surrounded Jordan.
3: He lived such a different life from the rest of us, uh, and he, you know, he, he didn't really invite you into that world. You know, I never went over to his house. You know, during the season, he couldn't really go out. Much um, because of the attention he would draw, so he'd kind of hang in his suite with his his friends and his security guys. So we never really penetrated that world, his world. So that made it a little trickier to be his teammate because you it took longer to build trust.
1: As he had hoped, Jordan had crossed over
3: from simply being a basketball star.
1: He was a cultural icon, one of the most famous people in the world, feted by presidents, musicians and movie stars. After a brief retirement, and an even briefer stint with the Chicago White Sox AA affiliate, Jordan returned to basketball in 1995. It didn't take long for the winning to resume. He did it again, won three straight NBA championships in 1996, 97, and 98. But the second go-around was more grueling. Robert Parrish won three championships with Larry Bird, a more reluctant superstar. Then he joined the Bulls in 1996 and won a ring with Michael, too. Jordan's mystique, Parrish tells me, literally stopped people in their tracks. When he walked in the room, it was like a hush over the room. You know, all the chatter, different conversations going on. But when Michael
2: walked in, everybody got quiet. Like the president walked in the, in the room or something. It was like a hush. I knew right then that we was in the presence of someone really, really special because the only other person
1: that I've been around that had that type of effect on a crowd was Larry. Too many people wanted a piece of him. So his existence included slipping in and out of back doors and darkened town cars. And while his magnetism left even his closest friends in awe, Jordan's singular resolve also negatively affected those in his orbit. When Jordan released The Last Dance in April of 2020, a number of his teammates, Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant among them, were dismayed and angered by their portrayal. When I spoke with Jordan about it, he appeared a bit flummoxed. Wasn't it obvious that his tough love was the catalyst that enabled everyone to win? Steve Kerr has some ideas about that.
3: When The Last Dance came out, you know, the whole... um, Premise of the show was you know Michael was just drove everybody so hard on the team and and that's why we succeeded and there's a there's an element of truth to that of course I mean he's you know one of the most competitive people on the planet um, and the best player but I would say lots of us as his teammates could say you know what we were already pretty competitive we might have connected even more and and raised our level even higher had we had a better connection with them. Jordan says his mantra was consistent. Put a foot
1: on the neck and keep it there. He didn't believe in helping players up. It was, he was certain, a sign of weakness.
2: I'll give you one synopsis. When I came back from baseball, I don't know if I ever told anyone this. I'm playing against Shaq. Shaq, the biggest person I've ever seen play, you know, in terms of physicality. You know, he was this big, massive guy when I came back from baseball. So I was somewhat intimidated. So I, I didn't really know how to play against him. You know, do I go right at him, do I stop, I pull up, blah, blah, blah. So I went right at him and he just knocked me straight to the floor. And then he reached down and picked me up. I said, no, nah, he didn't mean, he's a nice guy. He's not that, any, I mean, if he'd have left and stepped over me, you know, a lot the old school, old old, I would have been somewhat intimidated. But his heart is too good, you know, he, he's not that type of guy. Uh, And and it took away some of the intimidation.
1: You knew you had him. (laughs) I
2: did. I did.
1: The Last Dance documentary was a fascinating insight to the insular world in which Jordan thrived. By the time he won his final championship in 1998, his closest companions were not his teammates. They were the security guards hired to protect him. Some members of the club may have had an inkling of what Jordan was experiencing. But, Kevin Durant surmises, MJ's trajectory was so swift and so unique. How could anyone possibly relate to what he was going through on a daily basis?
6: Maybe because nobody else was on that level with Jordan to give him good advice, you know? I think he was really the first of his kind to experience the stuff that he was experiencing. In
1: 1998, Jordan cemented his legacy with a game-winning shot over Brian Russell of the Utah Jazz in game six of the NBA Finals. It was a storybook ending, a second three-peat, 6-0 in the Finals, the greatest to ever lace him up. Jordan retired after those Finals, but he wasn't done with the NBA, not even close. While Jordan had mostly steered clear of developing close ties with the so-called enemy, there was one notable exception. In 1984, during the US Olympic trials, Jordan struck up a friendship with the incomparable Charles Barkley, before either had played a minute in the NBA. Jordan led the team in scoring and won a gold medal. Barkley got cut. No matter, an instant connection was forged between the two. Their personalities were as contrary as their physical appearances. MJ was reserved, measured, politically correct. While Barkley was gregarious, impetuous, a bit reckless, and unafraid to voice his opinions. So how did these two click? Barkley explains. One thing I'm
6: great at, I'm not in awe of anybody we played golf and had dinner, but I was like, I'm not at dinner with Michael Jordan. and I'm here with a, a dude, we're playing golf, I'm trying to kick his ass. So I think he admired that and respected that.
1: Barkley's friendship with Jordan was unlike any other. MJ had global popularity and wealth, well beyond NBA standards, and his friends benefited from a lifestyle that was incalculable to most. Barkley recalls a trip he took with Jordan and former NBA player Daryl Walker also a confidant of his airness in the late 90s after Jordan had retired and Barkley's season with the Houston Rockets ended.
6: Michael called me and says, what you doing? It was like three in the morning. I said, we lost, season's over, blah, blah, blah. He says, I pick you up at the airport in like five hours. I'm like, where are we going? We're just going to go play golf. Season's over for you. I'm like, okay, I ain't got shit to do. So he picks us up in his private jet. I get on there. Daryl's on there and things like that. And got a couple other guys. And Daryl says, yo, man, we can't ever do anything to screw this friendship up. You know, in my 36 years of being in the limelight, I've only met two people who people absolutely lose their fucking mind over. That's Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods. Like, and I've been around some of the biggest ever.
1: Barkley, Jordan, and Tiger Woods became regular golfing and gambling companions. They played at exclusive clubs and mingled with some of the most famous people in the world. But none of them, says Barkley, measured up to the wow factor of his two friends. Jordan and Barkley had never competed against each other in the postseason until 1993, when the Suns played the Bulls in the Finals. It was a year in which Barkley was named league MVP and transformed Phoenix into a rabid basketball town. Jordan says, in spite of the Suns and Barkley's great season, he was unconcerned.
2: I wasn't worried about Barkley because <laughs> I, I didn't think he had the work ethic to beat us, you know, because I think he didn't like to practice. So I would not worry, it. But I, he was a genuine friend. Don't get me wrong. I, I thought he was, very, you know, very funny, and I enjoyed spending time with him. We liked playing golf.
1: Rumors ran rampant during the 93 Finals that Jordan invited Barkley to hit the links, break bread, and party with him until morning, all with the intent of gaining a psychological edge. Barkley swears he didn't play golf or have dinner with Jordan during those Finals, although his former teammate Cedric Sabalas claims he saw the two superstars playing cards at two in the morning before game two. What really irks Barkley is the idea he could be manipulated into going soft on Jordan.
6: It's an insult because as no person I ever wanted to beat more, and I wanted to beat Michael when we played them in the finals. Uh, it was crazy, but he, he's the greatest player ever. And when I played against him, it, I, it was really personal.
1: Jordan says when he lined up against Barkley, it was the exact opposite of personal. He looked through his friend as if he were a total stranger.
2: On the court, I could. Compartmentalized my my competitive nature and man I didn't see you as, you know, a guy I went to dinner with last night. You know, and I think that's what people misunderstood. They thought I was trying to apply some type of strategy to it when in essence I really wasn't.
1: Jordan recalls an interview in which he heard Stan Van Gundy, the longtime coach who now works as a television commentator, make the assertion that Jordan was playing games by whining and dining his friends. Like Barkley and Patrick Ewing, who was also represented by Falk.
2: Stan Van Gundy called and said I would con the, the guys into going to dinner with them and then rip their throats out, you know, in the game. And said that's that's not that's not fair. I mean, my personality is my personality. I can I can separate, you know, and I consider these guys friends. I wasn't trying to con them. That's not who I am. That's not you know, that's not my personality. And that is, I, I took offense to that
1: comment. Jordan and the Bulls prevailed in the 1993 finals in six games, in spite of Barkley's efforts. It was a grueling series, yet unlike Bill and Wilt and Isaiah and Magic, their relationship emerged intact. They conducted a heartwarming joint interview with Oprah Winfrey in 2005 to discuss their unique relationship with Barkley hilariously sauntering on stage, modeling a powder blue Air Jordan sweatsuit. Here, you two say you're like brothers?
2: You know, I'm only, what, three days older? He says he's my older brother, but
6: he's only three days older. Uh.
1: Three days older.
6: (laughs) That's what he always says. Who's
1: the wiser? (laughs) The trouble started when Jordan got into management. After a brief comeback with the Wizards in the early 2000s, Jordan bought a minority stake in the Charlotte Bobcats, and became their head of basketball operations. Charles recalls a phone call he had with MJ in 2006.
6: I was calling Michael to give him some advice on the draft. And this is the first time we ever had a real disagreement. I said, who are you thinking about taking? He says, I'm thinking about taking Adam Morrison. I said, what? Because you can't take Adam Morrison. I said, Michael, he doesn't have a position no and I said he might be a nice kid he says well my coaches like him I says let me ask you a question did you say you liked him first or they agreed with you he's like what do you mean he says Michael nobody wants to disagree with you they're intimidated by you fuck you motherfucker these guys can be honest with you I said no Michael Michael calm down Michael calm down I I says
1: Michael you intimidate people Jordan drafted Morrison with the third overall pick. He tore his ACL and played three undistinguished seasons in the NBA, two with Charlotte, before retreating to Europe. Six years later, Barkley did a radio interview in Chicago. The host asked Barkley if he thought Jordan was an effective front office manager.
6: Even though Michael was a best friend, I had to tell the truth. And I said it, I said, yo, I'm not sure Michael, and he he had been through a bad run too. So I couldn't, I would have lost all credibility. I said, you know, I don't know if Michael's ever gonna be successful because he only hires his friends and they're just yes men. And I go to work that night, I see his name pop up. He is calling me every motherfucker, you son of a bitch, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Michael, I, I gotta do my job, blah blah blah. And he goes ballistic, and we have not talked since that night.
1: That is so sad
6: to me. It's painful for me because uh, the guy was like a brother to me. Uh, I me mean, and I love him like a brother, but like I, I, I like I wish he had a talk to me about it because uh, number one, I think I was right, but you know. Uh, it is what it is. It's really sad and unfortunate, uh, but I'd do anything for the guy if he if he called me. Um, but yeah, it's it's just
1: unfortunate. Have you ever tried to reach out to him in the last few years?
6: No, Jackie. You know I can't do that. You know I can't do that because I that to me would be like admitting I was wrong.
1: While some of Jordan's relationships with players of his own era may have soured, 19 years after his retirement, a whole new generation of NBA stars wear his Jordan brand. Among them, Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul, Luka Doncic, and Zion Williamson. They are unabashed Jordan disciples. Even Kemba Walker, whom Jordan declined to sign to a lucrative free agent contract with Charlotte, still wears his shoes. Jordan has also surreptitiously become a sounding board for eager young stars who followed him. It started with Kobe Bryant, with whom he developed a deeply close relationship that included probing calls from Kobe at two in the morning. Kobe's inquiring mind gave Jordan pause. He had always been so closed off during his playing days, but as he's grown older, he's taken a longer view of his legacy and made the decision to quietly share his knowledge with the next generation. So when Kevin Durant called him up recently, he was happy to engage with the Brooklyn Nets star. It's a vast departure from how he originally approached his career. But Jordan says he finds his mentorship role fulfilling.
2: To be frank with you, I have to be somewhat careful, you know, in dialogue with the players because I am a owner. So I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm tampering and, you know, uh, so when, when I talk to these guys, I say, look, you know, please... Don't tell anybody that I'm, I'm dialoguing with you because I don't want... To me, basketball comes first. I am a historian and a basketball lover. I will provide information to guys if you need it. It may cost me something in terms of your team beating my team, but I love the game of basketball, and I will give you that information to benefit the game of basketball. You know, that's that's my personality.
1: And that's part of the club, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, that's, you know, I feel like you, once you're in that club, then good. If I can help you, you know, elevate and keep maintain, great. I do that. Even if you're going to beat my
1: team. Jordan set the precedent for Kobe, Durant, and countless others on how to capitalize on their own talents. A fact Collins hopes they recognize.
5: The league couldn't play Michael Jordan enough for what he was doing. Everybody wanted to watch Michael Jordan, from the grandmother in Iowa to the star uh, businessman in New York City. It, It didn't matter. Get your eyes on Michael Jordan because you're going to see something spectacular. Jackie, he never let people down.
1: Lately, Jordan has championed many causes for people of color, including collaborating with the Jordan brand to commit $100 million over the next 10 years to organizations dedicated to fighting systemic racism, among them the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. He vocally supported LeBron James in his Twitter wars with former President Donald Trump and threw his weight behind NFL players who kneeled during the national anthem to protest racial injustice. When the Bucks boycotted their playoff game in 2020 to protest police brutality against Black lives, it was Jordan, now the lone Black majority owner in the league, who served as a conduit between the players and his fellow owners to get the games up and running again. He huddled with Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook ahead of an emergency owners meeting, where he advised the billionaires who control the teams, listening is better than talking right now. Back in the mid-'80s, Nike would have told you that consumers prefer their stars to be apolitical. The shoe company has become more enlightened as the years have passed, and so, perhaps, has Jordan. In truth, Jordan's popularity hasn't waned regardless of his actions or inaction. The Jordan brand rolls on as it has from its inception in 1984. As recently as 2019, it generated $130 million in sales Four times what superstar LeBron James's signature shoe hauled in, according to Forbes. Let me repeat that. A guy who has not played basketball in 19 years sold four times as many shoes as the Los Angeles Lakers icon, whose nickname is the King. It's got to be the shoes, right? Nah, it's the icon. Jordan obliterated the scale of the NBA superstar forever. His fingerprints are all over every major event of his era, including the creation of the 1992 Dream Team, the greatest basketball team ever assembled. Even though the roster was loaded with Hall of Famers, Magic, Bird, Karl Malone, and David Robinson, it was clear who was the leader on that team. Dream Team alum Chris Mullen confirms Jordan was not only the best player, He was the alpha who set the tone in games, on the bus, and in practice. While the majority of the players were content to bask in the surreal vibe encompassing the dream team, Jordan was utilizing the experience as a canvassing mission.
2: To him, this was an opportunity to gain information, maybe set some boundaries and some standards and things like that, intimidation factors for for the next season. He's already thinking ahead to winning another championship. Yeah, you know, watching guys how they practice, watching strengths and weaknesses.
1: That's next on The Icons Club. This is The Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. I wrote and reported this podcast. Story editing by Justin Verrier. The show is executive produced by Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. Our producers are Bobby Wagner, Noah Malale, Jonathan Kerma, Isaac Lee, Justin Verrier, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. The theme music was composed by Devin Ronaldo. The rest of the music in this series is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Jack McCluskey and fact checking by Kellen B. Coates. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening.